The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, investors, authors, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You don't have the option to ask the question, well, is it my health over my wealth? Because we have no wealth, and so that might be the best way to go. And that's a hard sacrifice to ask of anyone. The NFL is thriving. The ad sold out quickly, expensively, for this latest Super Bowl. And owners are enjoying record values for their franchises. Pro football is one of the most profitable redoubts of live TV. And yet, the NFL is reeling. Allegations of institutional racism, sexism, and not enough being done to protect the long-term health of the Gridiron's gladiators. Something, maybe many things, will have to give. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our radio partners across Virginia, WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio. Up in Northern Virginia and D.C., we have WERA, Radio Arlington. In Asheville, North Carolina, we are on WPBM. And out west in Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me in the venerable basement of the VCU Brand Center, actually we're in a Swank Audio studio, is uh, Van Graves, the director of the VCU Brand Center. He's been in advertising for nearly 30 years, having been at, gosh, he was dean of the Creative Academy at the Ken Lyon International Festival of Creativity, chief creative officer at J. Walter Thompson Worldwide, worked with every brand you can possibly imagine. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I can't complain. I'm glad to be here and glad to see you. Well, uh, just for everybody listening out there, we're in masks just to timestamp the moment. We're, we're going to celebrate the second anniversary of this global pandemic soon. Hopefully it's on its way out. But you and I had a conversation catching up last week, which, which stayed with me when I drove away. The NFL's brand is so strong. I mean, it's the one thing that gets a run on avocados at the stores. Everybody's out there watching the show. It's a zeitgeistic moment what with all the advertising and the big game and yet it's a very troubled brand i look at the brian flores lawsuit for racism against the coaches i see eminem kneeling in the great halftime show of this super bowl which was controversial because some people suggested maybe in coded terms that it was too colored uh <laughs> considering past shows and everything yeah, else i mean yeah. even though prince played in the past you're already seeing dog whistles on twitter you see a, a significant crisis with um, the lack of color in ownership in the NFL. You see a continuing crisis with uh, head trauma and the longitudinal effects on quarterbacks, Joe Montana, Junior Sale, you name it. So it's omnipotent and powerful to the point that it could sell out its ads. And yet it's so troubled. Well, I mean, you know, you, you've, you've hit all the, the major points. I think that here's an opportunity for a brand, especially like the NFL, to evolve, you know, over the last... 10 years, especially the last three to five years, a lot has gone on. And I don't think they've evolved enough, in my opinion. Look at, you know, what's going on with Brian Flores 
and that whole situation is an uncomfortable reality. Um, one that as a person of color, you would hope is not real. And sometimes you think you're being paranoid about those things and you hear that happen and you go, okay, well, these things really do happen behind the, uh, behind the scenes. You know, so the question is, what is the NFL going to do about these things? How are they going to correct these things? Because some of these things deal directly with race. And, you know, since 2020, we've been grappling with those things and brands have been grappling with those things. And I think the NFL, um, in a lot of ways, even with the uh, with Washington, right? And so, right. this this is something that has continued to happen. Uh, just to uh, refresh our listeners, in a 58 page lawsuit filed this month, former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores, who is black, alleged that quote the NFL remains rife with racism, particularly when it comes to hiring and retention of black head coaches, coordinators, and general managers. Flores, who was fired by the Miami Dolphins in January, that's my favorite team, despite a winning, uh, record winning three seasons also claims that he was subjected to what he called, quote, sham interviews for head coach positions by both the New York Giants this offseason and the Denver Broncos in 2019. Flores says the interviews were only meant to satisfy the league's quota for interviewing candidates of color before the teams ultimately hired white men. This in a league that is overwhelmingly African-American and its players. I think it's more than three quarters. Yeah, so you've got 70% of the players are black. But I think this has to do with ownership, and I think it has to do with ownership across the board, whether you look at the NBA, whether you look at Major League Baseball, whether you look at the NFL, you know, again, with uh, the NBA, 70%, over 70% of the folks are black as well, or people of color. And the question is, you know, why haven't there been more black people, more people of color in those roles? And it makes me think about, you know, 1988, Jimmy the Greek saying why. Right. You know, refresh is, our listeners for that. I mean, people forget, you know, you've got I get, what's his name, um, Jimmy Snyder or Jimmy the Greek, you know, saying that black people are great athletes because of because of slavery and the breeding and, and so on and physical uh, prowess because of that. And then he went on to say, you know, one day they're going to want to be coaches. And that's the only thing that white people have left. And. You know, and then this went on. There's also a conversation. I mean, Al Campanis with the Dodgers in the early 80s. I mean, it's amazing That's how right. much this was enunciated. And to think 40 years later, it's still kind of, in terms of results, it remains in the undercurrent. That's correct. I mean, is it the undercurrent or is it the reality of the business? And so here's a question of, does the NFL need to think about how they do business? You know, business as usual is unusual now. And so what are they doing to reframe who they are? Because most of the players are being excluded from this opportunity, whether it be general manager, whether it be coach. And even with the issues around the um, a brain injury and how they grade those and what that looks like, all of these things impact what the brand looks like. And they really do need to take a, a serious look at that. You know, it's reminding me of, again, I grew up in Miami in Highland Oaks Elementary as little kids. I'll never forget, even though we played two-hand touch uh, football, in physical education, is that there was this general understanding? I cannot believe this was internalized by six, seven-year-olds. The general understanding that if there was a great black quarterback on the team, that he was going to be transitioned to wide receiver or tight end or defensive position because you just didn't see black quarterbacks in the NFL. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's seen as a you know the quarterback is the brains behind the the game. We now know very clearly that. You know, for a team to work, every part of it, it's like a body. Every part of it has to work in sync. But again, that quarterback is still seen as that white guy. That coach is still seen as that white guy. 
And we need to figure out how to break, you know, again, we were talking about, you know, you brought up the, uh, the Ted Koppel interview and the, with uh, Al Campus, right? It, those conversations happened in the mid 80s or 87, early 80s. I yeah. remember the Dodgers figure it was scandalous. You know, but we're still, it's, it shouldn't be a conversation today. It should be a non-issue. And my concern is we need to be proactive. The, you know, or, you know, a lot of folks now, when we think about the collegiate side of things, HBCUs, a lot of black students. Ole Miss, I mean, uh, Georgia, any of these other schools that have traditionally been big white donor feeder systems. Correct. Like there's a sense of ownership now that we could actually take that physical capital and now that you can be sponsored economic capital and brand capital to these historically black colleges. Exactly right. And so, you know, you think about what Howard University could do. I, I think that everything happens in peaks and valleys. And I think now we're at a point of, you know, within the black community, especially like we have the resources, we have the money. Should we be buying our own teams? Should, you know, was letting the Negro League through integration the right thing to do? I mean, these are questions that are out there that maybe we need to bring that back home. Maybe we need to figure that out. If the NFL is not going to do, as with any brand, you know, you move on to another brand or you create a competitive brand. So are there opportunities there for the black community? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Van Graves, veteran ad executive who's director of the Brand Center at Virginia Commonwealth University. I mean, this is the morning, the morning after to talk about uh, the branding evening. And even though it's, it seems kind of antiquated, you know, lining up around the TV to watch TV commercials because my entire family, you know, Netflixes and gets stuff on demand. But to bring up the Dolphins again and another central issue here, uh, the New York Times is posting this morning that three star players of the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins team were diagnosed with the most severe form of CTE. Uh, the brain disease linked to head hits, and died within 16 months of each other. For the first time, their families discussed caring for the NFL veterans at the end of their lives. I mean, Nick Buonacani, Jim Kick, Jake Scott, I mean, these were heroes uh, growing up. And to hear the likes of Joe Montana say that there are mornings that I couldn't feel my hand, uh, to see players like Andrew Luck retire, other players just retire, that they were top draft picks and saying that it's not worth it as much money as you throw at me if I'm going to have to trade my 50s and 60s for uh, my 20s. I have to retire. I want to be a grandfather. And moreover, I was thinking about this recently when watching the Pro Bowl, what's left of it. It's effectively turned into a bit of a two-hand touch flag football operation. I mean, not only do, if you're a Super Bowl player, you don't want to be in there. A lot of players opted out because they don't want to risk their bodies. And other players recognize it and aren't really fully tackling them. No, that's true. I mean, CT is scary, right? Now we understand the effects of it, how it not only hurts your body, but how you react to the people and your loved ones. You know, again, these are things that the NFL needs to directly deal with, but hasn't really done it in a way that feels, that gives you the warm and fuzzies, right? Um, and you want to be able to trust the brands that you deal with. You want to be able to say, okay, I support the NFL, but are they supporting their players? And again, as we already said, over 70% of the players are black and we're not taking care of them. And we're saying that their injuries aren't as important as those other players. It's an uncomfortable conversation to get to, and I think you're pushing up against it. But if you're overwhelmingly poor, but I'm thinking about the Miami Hurricanes feeder system from Miami Jackson, Carroll City, all the places in South Florida, and your ticket out of this is a football scholarship to a top program. There is a kind of a classism where 
you know, it's kind of a first world problem to worry about head concussions that other people want to opt out of it. Maybe they want to play football to a certain extent. I'm already hearing the conversation as a parent of a, of a middle schooler that we don't want our kids playing football. Overwhelmingly, it's kind of a basketball, less contact type thing. And by default, the ones that are choosing a football career and hitting the gridiron are overwhelmingly people of color. Because we're taught that's the way, the only way out. Um, but the likelihood and the reality is it's easier to become a doctor than an, an NBA or NFL player. But we're not taught that. We are, we are in a culture that, within the black community that tells us that there's only certain ways you can get out of the hood. There's only a certain way that you can lift yourself up. But look at how – I'm not having a moment here. It is – on a personal level, it's hard as a parent – of a young child. And I think about his love of football and his curiosity around it, you know, and you're right. It is a first world problem because for me, I can say, well, Hey, there are other options for you, but there are kids out there who don't have that. And what do you do with, I can't believe I'm getting choked up over this, but it's important to me because I think about my community as a whole and the impact of the NFL as a part of our culture, as a part of our community, as a part of how we use the NFL and use football and use sports as a rite of passage. And the end of that rite of passage is a dangerous one, you know, and then you have to, you don't have the option to ask the question, well, is it my health over my wealth? Because we have no wealth. And so that might be the best way to go. And that's a hard sacrifice to ask of anyone. I was so struck watching the game last night with who was sitting next to the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, Roger Goodell, but Russell Wilson. Um, African-American quarterback, product of Richmond, product of collegiate, the prep school, wasn't really given true consideration going into college, but then became one of the great quarterbacks of his generation. Um, and that then made me pivot to the person who was kind of a contemporaneous star to him was Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look up his bio, say Wikipedia will say that he's a civil rights activist and torchbearer first and former professional football player. He hasn't taken a snap in five years. There were many teams that could have used him including the Miami Dolphins. But he became, to most franchises, radioactive. And as a brand thing, you remember we discussed Nike going out on a limb and backing him for the courage of his convictions. And then you started to see veterans burning their Nike sneakers and everything. It's a real perilous territory to get into. You know, which is interesting because the reason why, as I've read, the reason why Colin Kaepernick started to kneel was because a veteran told him it's not disrespectful to kneel but to show the reverence for the flag, but don't be disrespectful. So that, that helped the process, but it, you know, how it got politicized, you know, affected the brand, affected Colin Kaepernick and his career. You're a veteran. I mean, you don't, you don't toot this horn a lot, but I, you know, at the nexus of veteran and brand management and a, a person of color, I mean, how were these cross currents in your head? Uh, you know, for me, I think the world has changed. I think early, you know, if you'd asked me five or six years ago, I would have said, you know, brands and politics should stay separate. You should not touch it. You know, but I think the expectation now from consumers, from users of brands, people who engage with brands, they want to hear that the brands they're dealing with are doing the right things for the community, for the people um, around them and their users. And folks will walk away from brands now who don't take a stand. It's interesting. My former, the former editor-in-chief of, uh, 
of Business Week, Josh Tarangel, he famously tweeted last night, now going back to ignoring you know ads for 364 days. I mean, it is interesting that largely these ads have been cut out of our lives as it's become a Netflix on demand, you know, Spotify generation. We're not listening to FM radio all that much. And yet NBC sold out of this inventory for advertising and yet people lined up and yet it's still, you know, you send a lot of kids to the advertising industry and it's the moment that grandpa and grandma watch. No, I mean, the Super Bowl is the Super Bowl. You know, I, I think that the game makes stadiums the American cathedral, right? Once a year. And it brings folks together. And so whether you're there to hang out with your friends, whether you're there to, you know, to have that Super Bowl party, whether you're there to watch the commercials or the game, there's something for everyone. But it is the one of the few places that we as a country come together, no matter your race, color, creed, what you believe in, um, and you watch the game, you sit down. And so this is a huge opportunity for brands to, to kind of strut their stuff you know, I think that the game this year was up 12% compared to last year. You know, it's 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 phenomenal. And it's really the last bastion for where advertising is efficacious, as you and I have discussed in the past, is live sports. That's why the, the value of these teams and the sports contracts, the TV contracts have gone up so much. I've seen versions of NFL games on Nickelodeon with splattering, you know, orange slime and everything because they want to make sure kids are still invested at a time of declining interest. You clearly are cognizant of the fact that there were sports betting ads all over the place, not just, you know, Caesars and these celebrities on the on the TV spots, but all over Instagram, all over Facebook. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, companies like DraftKings. I mean, those guys were in it because now that's a part of the marketing um, <clears throat> plan for the NFL as well, because you've got those folks, you know, getting the data on players and, and helping them to figure out how the best way to sell the players. So again, it's at the end of the day, it's still a business. And as much as we are emotionally attached to our teams, emotionally attached to, you know, you know, the, whether it be the Bengals, whether it be you know, the Rams, it's, it's to make money. And how do we sell those brands? How do we sell those teams? And this betting is a part of that system and it's not going to go away. You know, you see uh, the New York Times headline, rap takes over Super Bowl halftime, balancing celebration and protest, which, you know, Charlie Kirk comes in, he mocks, uh, he, he called the Super Bowl halftime show sexual anarchy. Uh, you know, he's a conservative activist. Definitely something that you didn't see in the past. I mean, there were traditional microphone performances. Prince was definitely a legendary thing. You could go with a standard kind of, um, I don't know, boy band, girl band type thing. But this definitely felt like a landmark thing. You're underscoring in Los Angeles, a home NFL team after the NFL had been gone from LA, this massive market for 22 years. And they're on stage, Snoop Dogg, Dre, Eminem kneeling. I mean, no more drama in my life. It was definitely a moment. Well, the reality is, look, it's the first time that hip hop has taken over the game, right? And also, you know, you use that word traditional. Why are we being traditional? I mean, it's a Super Bowl halftime. It should be an opportunity for true creativity. And so, I mean, for someone of a certain age, which is my age, you know, I was standing up, jumping around. My kids thought I had lost my mind. I mean, it it was it was time, and I think it actually passed due to have you know hip hop, which has been a part of American culture for forty odd years now, to finally literally be center stage, and it was phenomenal. And I think from a cultural standpoint, I mean, an American cultural standpoint, um, it's about time. 
I mean, it's amazing that you talk about the era of this hitting a tripwire and Yo MTV raps and everything, a, a, a mid to late 80s phenomenon thing. And we're talking about this in 2022. I don't even remember what the halftime shows were when I was a kid. Was it like the band Alabama or Elvira? Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to step away from that one. I'm, I'm, I'm too young for it's that. It's just the kind of it, – it, it, it was interesting in that respect. It was interesting in the blowback it got on Twitter. And stepping back from all this, Van, I, I want to kind of get a sense for where – brands are in the grand scheme of things because uh, for example that that whole qr bouncing ad for coinbase i thought was commissioned by their agency of record right here in town but no somebody else convinced them that you could spend a whole ton of money and just make it look like a screensaver with a qr code bouncing and talk about customer acquisition everyone including my wife and in-laws are going to take their phone to that qr code to say what the heck is going on and uh, that is a that is a dare, that is a risk, it is a leap of faith, and it seemed to have paid off in, in spades. I mean, they, their, their website crashed. The website crashed. I mean, you know, bad news is good news. No news is bad news. You know, so there's a lot of criticism about the spot. But the reality is they got, you know, revenue, they got clicks. It's great. It's amazing. But, I mean, for a brand purist like myself, you know, my challenge was, wow, where's the great idea? Wasn't that the great idea, though? I mean, you are, you say, you know, you are kind of a hybrid business school here in a creative problem solving. If the bean counters are saying, what's the ROI on this? What is the customer acquisition cost? If I'm getting ultimately this many click-throughs for my $7 million, $10 million spend, it's not worth it. Vanity be damned. Right. So here we focus on creative problem solving. So yes, did they solve the business problem? Absolutely. Did they do an amazing job? Absolutely. We challenge our students here to really push the envelope. How do you take that as a nugget and take it to the next level and make it an enjoyable experience? Now, if I want a million dollars, is that an enjoyable experience? Absolutely. So, you know, it's, I think the best part about what goes on with commercials and brands at the Super Bowl is we all have an opinion. And, you know, there are certain things that I loved that my wife just kind of looked at me sideways and vice versa. So, it's, I mean, but that's a part of the experience of the Super Bowl itself. You know, I had a question is, do you, do you believe for a minute that Kevin Hart would ever be caught dead shopping at Sam's Club? I mean, it's a, Sam's Club is owned by Walmart, if I believe. They're very stingy with their TV spend to think that they got this guy with his millions and millions of Instagram followers to cross promote that. It, it, it was one of those moments where you're, you know, old economy and kind of new economy are, are trying to get in bed together and the results are very clumsy. I think it's always been that way, though. I mean, you think about the old Pepsi spots back in the day. I mean, celebrity-ridden, and they were amazing. And well, the Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford. Michael you know, Jackson and the hair. Oh, absolutely. They weren't drinking Pepsi. They weren't. But it was a part of the experience, and we were brought into that. And I think that was a, you know, we were brought into that experience, and it's, it, it's a part of our culture. I mean, that's why when we talk about, and you asked about the NFL originally, the Super Bowl is the crown jewel of the NFL. And those spots helped it. That's why people are willing to spend $7 million for per ad. That is because it works and it's a part of who we are. And it's a part of the American well, DNA. It works in that it's a prestige imprimatur. Like you're in the big leagues now. If I can remember Coinbase for nothing else, if I'm a mom and pop that knows nothing about crypto, but Coinbase was that brilliant screensaver QR ad. Is that worth it? Is that worth the impression, Mindshare? I think for that moment. Because remember... The Super Bowl is a part of, again, American culture. So 
I'm sharing that with my kids. My kids will share it to their kids. I shared it with my dad and so on. So it is a part of who we are today, just as much as politics is today. It is something that we share and a part of the American consciousness. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, talking to Van Graves, director of the VCU Brand Center. We're in downtown Richmond. I mean, this is the day to talk about brands right after uh, the Super Bowl. Tell me what your students are telling you, what they're asking you. You have traditionally gone in the past and run victory laps like, oh, look at these Brand Center graduates were involved in this Super Bowl ad. It's definitely the, uh, the, the marquee morning. Yeah, no, it's been a great morning for us. And so this year, I mean, we had the Brand Center had 17 spots on the Super Bowl. Uh, 23 of our alums worked on those 17 spots. I mean, it, you know, we're proud. I mean, it is a always a great day for us. And that's been pretty consistent for the last few years. So, um, you know, there it is a way that for our students, it's almost like a graduation to be proud of our alums and see what they do in action as they move into this industry. Uh, but Super Bowl aside, what kind of things creative problem solving in terms of brands are you being asked to do in this environment? And again, it goes back to live TV. Live TV is we're being told with cord cutting, it's dying a very rapid death. And these networks are in the kind of these death throes realizing how to convert everybody from this to a, a paid plus app. I mean, I think it's all about, you know, it's not about the platform. It's how you approach the platform. So, you know, you think about when radio came out, folks were like, well, it's the end of print. When TV came out, it was the end of radio. Well, now radio is Spotify. Well, now TV is Netflix. So we're trying to figure out the ways to to use those platforms to our benefit while still being creative. And our students are doing that. It's funny. You, you surely follow the account on Twitter, Adweek, A-D-W-E-A-K, which just parodies all of the, the, the insecurities and shortcomings of the advertising industry. But they tweeted, breaking number of votes by agency staffers beat out number of votes by other agency staffers to catapult their Super Bowl top spot, the top spot of Super Bowl ad polls. Um you know, uh, where is this industry headed? Uh, it used to be the agency of record, Van, as you know, that you were very comfortable. You spent a long time, like what, with Geico and the Martin Agency. You were just an extension of that corporation. And now it's more kind of a la carte. And I'll use you for this and I'll use somebody else for digital and I'll reassess you constantly and, and pitch you against one another. Yeah, it's a harder industry to, to play in for sure. I mean, everyone's a free agent, um, but I think that it keeps you from just laying back on your heels and chilling, right? You've got to stay relevant. You've got to stay frosty. If not, you're not going to get the job. And so that's why today, and we do it here at the Brand Center, we focus on our students being polymaths. Like you have to be more than just one thing. When I started out, you know, you could just be an art director. You could just be a strategist. Well, now you need to be a creative who understands strategy, how to build the brand, how to answer the client's questions on a business sense, because they now can track, whereas back in the day, you could have a great idea and we will produce it because it's funny. Now it's like, well, how is that going to help my business? How, how are we going to grow that business and that share? And we have to consider that today where we never had to before. And so to answer your question, to be at where's the industry going today and what is the expectation is for us to be ambassadors of that brand, understand that brand, understand the business needs and the fear of the client. Why, what are they scared of? What makes them uncomfortable? How can we help them solve that problem? Isn't that a terrifying pitch? I've always wondered. I mean, you've been a part of it, but to go in and say, don't think about immediate ROI and customer acquisition. You want to build a name. You want to stand for something. You want to really plant the flag for the long run at a time when brands have to stand for something. 
It is. I mean, it's scary. It's scary in a, in a world where the average CMO stays in their role 18 months. Chief marketing officer. Yeah. And, and so they want to put their thumb on whatever brand they're working on. And you're trying to hold their hand saying, no, 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 you really need to take the time to build brand equity before you move on to the next thing. And that's where the partnership comes in for an agency uh, when they're working with brands to, to be that for them. And that's why it's so important to understand the business and understand their fears. And then what about, you saw so much celebrity last night. I mean, these the, the Uber Eats ad, which I thought was a dud. Um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow chewing on her candle and the various other people here, one from Succession, one from another HBO hit. Uh, and then there's this whole parallel channel of avoiding that spot altogether and writing a celeb, say, a $200,000 check to promote it directly on their Instagram feed. That it's supposed to be organic, but you are breaching the organic relationship to get them to promote a brand that they might be comfortable with? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I, I think that using a celebrity for celebrity's sake is hard. I mean, folks do it, <clears throat> but if there's no integral connection between, and, and you talked about Kevin Hart, you know, if there's no real connection and you start suspending your actual reality around that, it becomes tougher. And that's why it's important brands need to be realistic in what they do and how they frame their brand. And you know, some brands that want to be luxury, luxury brands aren't right. And so understand who you are as a brand and the best brand builders understand that our job is not to change your brand to suit the creative's needs or the advertiser's needs. It's really to help the consumer understand what your brand actually is and what benefit you can bring to them. We're at a fork in the road with respect to brand influence, I, I think. And I, I don't mean to throw around the cliche, but you take Beyonce in a few years ago and flagging Red Lobster in one of her songs. And, you know, Red Lobster has seen better days as a brand, the casual restaurant industry and not. And yet in that parallel universe of Instagram and TikTok, they'll send a great influencer like, uh, I don't know, How Kev Eats. There are some people that just get paid to watch their reaction when they eat for the first time when they try the cheese biscuits or something, right? Um, they're getting paid. They're getting sent care packages. Diplo's getting sent the new Popeye's chicken sandwich on his private jet for that impression. And uh, you wonder what's going to move the needle. You can't really look into the future all that much. We are disproportionate on our smartphones and tablets. We aren't listening to live radio or watching live TV that much. But in the few minutes we have left for you, sir, look into your crystal ball. You have all these anxious students that come up to you and say, how do I best position myself? You talk about being a generalist, a, a creative problem solver. We are, after all, in an audio studio in your school that didn't exist just a few years ago. That's true. I mean, you know, to answer your question around Red Lobster and kind of approach that, you know, again, that's nothing new. That's product placement. We just have to place it differently and what it looks like as we deal with newer platforms, whether it be TikTok or IG. And so we're training our students to do that, not only for the brands that they work for, but also for themselves as a brand, because that's also become important. Individuals are brands. So if you look at the new NCAA rules, athletes are brands. And so we're thinking about how you do that and how you build your brand on a personal level as well. And so as you look at, you know, places like the brand center, or as you go out into the world and the business world, um, after you graduate from undergrad, it's really about how you are presenting yourself as well. So what are, what are some other roles that are developing in this environment outside of the traditional? I mean, if you're, your dream job was to work for a chief marketing officer of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, what are some other people who unsurprisingly are tapping brand center grads? 
I mean, you know, you're talking about experienced designers that may be going to private equity firms. Um, you're talking about um, creatives that are, you know, copywriters and art directors that may be going into, and I can't get too specific, but for, you know, large defense contractors. So it's showing that every industry today is really looking at folks that are thinking creatively about brands and how to best position themselves because business is much more competitive than it ever has been. And even with the supply chain issues around COVID, same thing, like everyone is scrambling to figure out the best way to put their product forward. And they're looking at students like Branson or students to help them solve those problems. You know, and finally, man, I'm just struck by a conversation we had and that so much power is consolidated in the hands of a smartphone. The technology now is largely 15 years old. If the first one came out in 2007, it is amazing the things that a student, a creative had to do to borrow at the library, you know, mics, this, that, that, apps, uh, garage band, all the freeware that's out there. So much stuff is consolidated in a little brick in your hands. And even the mics that we're using now, the headphones, the technology, the prices just collapsed, the accessibility. It's it's really a kind of a, the, the barriers have dropped. No, it really hasn't. And that's why creativity, especially in the in the world of brands, and marketing and advertising isn't about the stuff. It's truly about the idea and how you approach it. And that's where we focus on. It's the thinking around it, not just, hey, we're teaching you how to edit a film or we're teaching you how to, you know, do the components of it that are, you know, the hand pieces of it, but really to get in there and think about how you solve the problem from an intellectual standpoint. Finally, your favorite spot on the Super Bowl? You know, I'm going to reserve because I have way too many alums that <laughs> going to give a diplomatic answer. I will say, you know, my diplomatic answer is there was a lot of great spots and I'm really proud of what our students did. Ever the diplomat, Van Graves, executive director of the Brand Center at VCU. He joined here in August 2018 after 20 plus years of creative and executive leadership experience. Gosh, you, you were previously the chief creative officer at J. Walter Thompson. Atlanta, you were executive vice president, global executive creator at McCann, New York. You're a military veteran. Sir, I urge you to come back on this show. You're always welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, recommend the show, and rate us. Additionally, shout out to our radio partners. WVTF, Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, KPPQ out in Ventura, California, and up in Northern Virginia and much of D.C., WERA, Radio Arlington. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. If you are just joining us, we're talking about the business of the NFL. In some respects, it feels stronger than ever versus the sports turmoil from allegations of racism and sexism to the physical toll on players' minds and bodies. My guest now is Scott Soshnick, editor-in-chief of Sportico. Prior to that, he was at Bloomberg News for more than 25 years, where he was the face and byline of the business of sports. We had a joint business week byline on the sale of the Dolphins, on, on the Dodgers. Uh, sir, how are you? I miss you. I am wonderful, Robin. It is like a, a, an honor, an honor to be joining you. Oh, it's I, great I to follow do your show. I follow your food recommendations, uh, you know, local in Richmond. I, I mean, I'm thinking of moving there. You should be like the president of the Chamber of Commerce. They should give me money, the Chamber. 
Hey, listen to this show. (laughs) I got to ask you about the NFL, Scott, the business of the NFL. At a time of broadcast TV's decline, we just saw Super Bowl ad spots sell out with gusto at a hefty price tag. What does that tell us? It it tells you that the National Football League continues to be the 800-pound gorilla when you're talking about sports and broadcast television. Uh, Yeah, everything else is moving to streaming, and the NFL is keeping an eye there. Um, But the NFL is about the only thing that on over-the-air television, linear TV, that not only holds its audience, which for now is considered a win for others, but there's no diminution. They are adding to audience. Like 75 of the top 100 shows were all NFL Uh, If you're looking to make a splash on linear TV, you have to find either a special event like an award show or the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade coverage, or if you want the short thing, you go to the National Football League. And yet, 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 it's the spotlight for advertising the Super Bowl, but the NFL faces many headlines that would be noxious to brands. I mean, you look at Deshaun Watson, the former Houston Texans quarterback hit with all these sexual abuse charges. He hasn't taken a snap in some time. You look at Colin Kaepernick, who took his knee, what, five years ago, protesting police brutality. Hasn't played since. Uh, No team would sign him. You look at former Dolphins head coach Brian Flores alleging systemic racism, a lack of minority representation in the ranks of coaches and owners. I don't mean to insult you, Robin. I would never do this on your show. But can I please respond with a giant yawn? Because I have yet to see, and you can go back to Ray Rice, you can go back to whatever it is, whatever the incident or the problem or the mark against the league, insert problem here. No matter what it is, we have really yet to see a sustained diminution of ratings. Yes, you'll have a little down up here, and that can be matchups. That can be a bunch of things. Like Kaepernick was supposed to be like, that's it. You know, a whole swath of football fans are never watching again. And I'm going to tell you the story, Robin, that that I love, and it really pertains to this. I was walking down Fifth Avenue once with David Stern. That's David Stern, former commissioner of the NBA. You know, I mean, probably, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of sports commissioners. And somebody a former commissioner of the NBA, and they were in a lockout at the time. So much where like baseball is now. And somebody came rolling by in the car, rolled down the window and screamed at David, ah, you greedy, this and that, and I'm never watching you, blah, 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 right? And And David said, that is the guy I don't worry about. The passion that he has, whatever prompted him to roll down the window and scream at me, That's how I know I got him. That's how I know that guy will be back whenever we do play games again. You know who worries me, the commissioner said? It's the person that looks at me and says nothing. So the more you hear, the more noise, I'm never watching, this stinks, there's too much this, it's that. You know what? They still can't help themselves come, and I'm going to use just one day, even though the NFL is across multiple days of the week right now. Still, football is, you know, a Sunday, meat and potatoes Sunday. Uh, Come Sunday, they will flick their television or stream uh, to the National Football League. The NFL is winning no matter whatever's happening off the field. 
So many years after the first black head coach was hired, Flores claimed that Dolphins owner Stephen Ross bribed him to lose games, the better to land a higher draft pick. He said there were a bunch of sham interviews. Why do we still have this so late in the history of the game? I mean, more than 50 Super Bowls in. It doesn't feel like this is an NBA or MLB problem to have such a lack of color in the ranks of management. Yeah, you know, I I don't want to pretend that I'm the smartest guy in the room here just because I'm an observer. So I will tell you the conversation I just had with Kevin Demoff, who's the CEO of the uh, Super Bowl champion now, LA Rams. He said the implementation of the Rooney Rooney Rule was sort of a knee-jerk reaction. Okay, the the failure... Well, first, explain the Rooney Rule for our listeners. the, The Rooney Rule says that if there is a vacancy, a head coaching vacancy, that that particular team with the opening must must interview at least one person of color for the position. That's the Rooney rule. So that's why you're bringing up Brian Flores brought up the sham interviews. Like It was like, okay, uh, the mind was made up, the job was already given to somebody else or promised to somebody else, but to satisfy this rule, we will grant an interview, even though that person, he alleges, had no chance of getting the job. And what, what I'm told from Kevin is that the, the problem was years ago, it's not the now, the knee-jerk, it's you have to start at the very beginning. You need transparency of process. You need to have where the lower ranks, I mean, assistant coaches, special teams coaches, people just coming in, and a real assistance on how do you interview better? How can we improve the process? Really have a transparent process of hiring, of promoting. How about we post when you when you post a, a job opening? How about salary scale and what others are making there? A fully transparent process will lead to more just outcomes in terms of who is getting hired for those positions. That's his take. And this is a man who has been the CEO of a football team for quite a long time. And by the way, one that has a pretty good track record in terms of diversity, both uh, of color and of gender in their management ranks. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Scott Soshnick, editor-in-chief of Sportico. He previously covered at Bloomberg the business of sports for more than 25 years. Scott, talk to me about the scandal, uh, one of the scandals with the former Washington football team, what with owner Dan Snyder, allegations of a sexually hostile workplace, not being forthcoming with legal documents. You hear rumors that the NFL could invoke some sort of nuclear option like the NBA did with former Clippers owner Donald Sterling forcing a sale of Washington's football team, the commanders they're calling them now. What are you hearing? Well, what you had with Donald Sterling, and as you know well, I covered that uh, uh, intimately. What you had was a recording of the owner using the racist language, Mm. right? So you had that. There was no, there was no, well, maybe, maybe there was a misinterpretation. You had the recording in his own words, what he said. What we have here with the Washington Commanders, formerly Washington football team, formerly something else that recently was changed, are allegations, right? And this is the deal where I I would be surprised, while we're starting to see more smoke, where I would be surprised if a change was made is the vehicle by which an ownership change has to occur is a vote by the other owners. And I will tell you that sports team owners are loath to take that nuclear option 
for fear that the next head on the chopping block is their own. You know, I can tell you, and I, I, I'm not going to give you the numbers, the total numbers, but I can tell you a good number of professional sports franchises have indeed, even those where no allegations have been made, that there is seemingly no problem, a good number of professional sports franchises have hired independent investigators to come in and do these assessments on how have we done in terms of performance with how are women treated? How are we done with how people of color are treated? If anybody does have any allegations, they're trying to get in front of it. Of course, that is not a situation where it would become public now. They're trying to get in front of a problem. I don't know what those responses or what those, those inquiries have shown, but my guess would be that there are a good number of teams that probably would not like whatever dirty laundry has been uncovered to be aired publicly. That is the concern from owners like, uh-oh, if I push on Dan Snyder, what if I'm next? Because is my skeleton or is my closet clean? And the answer I'm guessing on more than a handful will be no. Looking around at the headlines by way of explanation on CBS NFL, the NFL commissioner can propose firing any owner or partner for wrongful conduct and can take that complaint to the league's executive committee, needing three-fourths of the committee to vote to terminate. So I guess it's kind of like an electoral college or filibuster for sports. You might remember from last year, John Gruden resigned as the head coach of the Vegas Raiders following reports of racist, misogynistic, and homophobic emails. Uh, this was Chucky. He was a talking head on TV, ESPN, I believe. He was memed, known, adored, then bam, gone. You know, scan the headlines again. Free agent running back Adrian Peterson was arrested at LAX in connection with what officials said was domestic violence. I mean, that's like deja vu all over again. Yeah, and my what I keep bringing up, though, Robin, is what is the effect? What is the tangible effect of, of the accumulation of all these events, of all these off-field ugliness. What is the effect? We have, at, at this moment, we don't know how many people watched the Super Bowl. Do you want to bet whether it's over 100 million or under 100 million? Do I think it's 50 million people because the, the 100 that usually watch are so disgusted with what they're hearing coming out of Washington or the, or the front page of the New York Times on the culture of how women are treated at the NFL office, or that Adrian Peterson was arrested. Do you want to bet how many of these people who are so disgusted with the off-field behavior and all these things that are going on, do they shut off the TV or did they tune into the Super Bowl? My guess is they tuned into the Super Bowl. You're going to get over 100 million people to, who watched this game despite public protestations of all of these other things, and I'm shutting it off, and I'm never watching it again. I go back to David Stern, who tells me, if you're screaming and you're, and you're telling me you never will and you're so passionate, that's why you're going to put the game on. Scott, what about degenerative body trauma? You look at my favorite 1972 Miami Dolphins, undefeated, storied already 50 years ago. The New York Times now reports that three star players of that undefeated Super Bowl-winning squad were diagnosed with the most severe form of CTE, you know, brain trauma, and died within 16 months of each other. Um, you know, Nick Buonacani, Jim Kick, Jake Scott. You see interviews with the likes of Joe Montana and Jim Plunkett. They invariably have motor and anger issues later in life. The, the tragic decline of uh, NFL great Junior Seau. You saw Andrew Luck out of Stanford leave the league altogether to protect his brain. I mean, he was first round royalty. 
there's a reason Barry Sanders ran away from football, right? And this was a guy who, better than most, with his ability to deflect and, and to juke, he didn't take a lot of direct hits, but he's a running back. And he said, enough is enough. I don't need to do this for more years. Uh, by the way, if you watch the Super Bowl, did you see Cooper Cup, the, the MVP of the game? He took a hit right near the end of the game where he stayed down. Like, I, I see people who, who study these things, like Chris Nowinski, saying he should not have even been in the game to catch the winning pass because he should have been in the concussion protocol. Or Joe Burrow getting taken down seven times. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't need, I, I'm going common sense here. <laughs> I know I, the, the commissioners will not like to hear this, especially Roger Goodell. I'm just going to go, I can't imagine that repetitive head trauma is good for you. I, I can't imagine that all of the bangs and the concussions uh, have absolutely nothing to do with the decline of a lot of these former players. I mean, that's what the medicine seems to show, and the players understand that, right? And, and, and it is a risk of playing. I allow my son to play ice hockey, but I will not at this age, at the age of 12, allow him to play football. Not yet. It'll be flag football until if he wants to when he's older and his brain is more developed. What do you read in the recent Pro Bowl, you know, being effectively flag football? The tackles were less than half-hearted. Yes, it, and now the Olympics are considering some version of flag football? Yeah. Well, I don't know if they want to. I know it, it, there is a faction that will at least present it for inclusion in the games. I, I think it's probably an infinitesimal possibility that that will happen. But... The NFL is taking steps. If you look at the numbers, and and boy, we do love our data these days, right? An outsized uh, percentage of injuries do happen during, let's say, kickoffs and punt coverage. So what is what did the NFL do? They moved the kickoff up. So a lot of the balls now sail through the end zone, and you don't have those mega hits of runbacks. And you're going to see the same on punt coverage and things like that. So they are trying to remove at least the most prevalent part of the game where these injuries occur. I mean, you're never going to be able to change the basis of football. You have big people. What is it? I'm going to go back, if I may, to my high school physics. F equals M times A, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. These are big people. That's a lot of mass who run really fast. That's good acceleration. That's a high, that's a high number for the force. And when they collide, things are going to happen that are not good for the human body. But Scott, even when they don't collide, there are traumatic head injuries. You saw that wide receiver recently miss a catch and fall on the side of his helmet. His arms sprung yeah. up like rigor mortis. Everyone was terrified of paralysis. Everyone in the stadium was silent. Yes, it's tackle football. You can't play like a bunch of inflatable sumo wrestlers at a birthday party. But I wonder about the NFL's longevity if kids increasingly opt out of this sport. There is a socioeconomic component to this argument, absolutely. Do I think the talent pool of people playing football will shrink? Yes. Do I think the prospective players for the NFL, whether it be college football, high school football, do I think they're going to stop playing high school football in Pennsylvania, in Texas, in Florida, in New Jersey, in California? No, I do not. Might those numbers shrink? Perhaps. Maybe, but will it go to zero? No, I think there will always be a feeder system of people who want to play football, who like the game. I have told people, you have not witnessed a National Football League game until you have stood on the sideline 
and seen just how fast and just how violent those collisions are. Sitting in the stands, even great seats, watching it home with all the microphones and the drones, it does not do it justice. Until you are right there and see and feel and hear those collisions, you have no idea what this game is about. We were joined by Sportico Editor-in-Chief, veteran from Bloomberg News, Scott Soshnick, where he covered the business of sports for more than 25 years. Sir, please come back on. Yeah. Yeah.